Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, a show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many snicketty good titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me being a member of the Weapons Plus crew over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And if I had to name one and one only, my favorite member of the Weapons Plus program would be Weapon 13 himself, Phantom X. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNate, XGrayX, and my favorite member of the Weapons plus program would be weapon 14 the stepford cuckoos hey guys i'm drew you can find me online on twitter and instagram at drusifer3 that's at d-r-e-w-s-i-p-h-e-r-3 and my favorite member of the weapon plus program would probably have to be both phantom x and the cuckoos great choice i love it go for the best hey everybody this is jonah you can follow me over on twitter and instagram at peak jonah that's p-e-a-k and my favorite member of the weapons plus program is weapon number two brute force okay how did i fuck that up so bad (laughs) brute force man uh well hashtag justice for dr echo hashtag justice for dr echo we are here to celebrate and enjoy what can only be described as one of the most beautiful issues of a marvel comic i have seen in quite some time we're going to be taking a look at wolverine number 20 trigger warning by ben percy and adam kubert frank martin and dijo lima came in and did some color dijo lima specifically on pages 9 through 14 vc's Corey pettit is our letterer with tom muller and Jay Bowen on design. There were a number of covers. And I think the big thing here that I am like the most excited to talk about is this use of pink purple all over the motherfucking book. And now I have a new role in life. I am the bastard prince of Krakoa and I've never been so happy. I love this for you. Yeah, this is this was for me. This was like just for me. How did everybody feel about the reintegration of Deadpool into the X books? I know, Jonah, you were probably devastated that he clarified he's no longer the king of staten island yeah i was a little upset over that i really liked that job for wade i thought it was really fun obviously i really enjoyed his chemistry with elsa bloodstone that would be no secret to anybody who knows me it was a new fresh take for me on wade that made him feel like he was doing something really purposeful and fun because i often find that wade's stories he doesn't really serve like a larger purpose in the marvel world and that's maybe not his job to do but especially in this book he seems kind of sad about that and I like that when he was King of Staten Island, he at least had something that he could focus his energy on. I think for me, the thing that it makes me look forward to is the sort of acknowledgement that Deadpool being the incredibly important character that he is to just like Marvel iconography, putting him back in conversation with the X-Men and putting him on Krakoa and putting him next to Wolverine. That's really a statement from Marvel about like a very good place for Deadpool to have some really solid interactions that I think show 
some faith in what's going on in the Krakoa line and show some opportunity for storytelling that can be a little more outside the box, a little fun, a little looser. This book has been very serious a lot of the time and especially come up, coming off of X Lives and X Deaths. That had a very, very serious, dark tone and I didn't always connect with that. So I wasn't necessarily looking forward to picking this book up again, but it really got outside of its previous standard and did something fun and different that shows a lot of promise to me for the future. Yeah, I agree with what you guys were saying. Adding Deadpool to the mix of like this team up adds like a little spice that it didn't have before. It does like rejuge the book up a little bit. We just went through X Lives and X Deaths, and that was like a Wolverine, you know, like fuck fest. And it was all about Wolverine, 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 and it's getting shoved in our face. And then when we get to the Wolverine issue, you're like, okay, and it's going to be another Wolverine issue. But it was more of a Deadpool issue than a Wolverine issue. So that I kind of liked how it didn't, you know, it kind of broke it off a little bit. I agree completely. And they even use some pretty clever framing devices to create the sense of transformation. We have the opening pages in that fascinating sort of shape with the circle on top, the broken down panels at the bottom. And when we transition into more of the straightforward Wolverine issue, it's on a half circle that kind of drops into the page itself with Deadpool falling into the action. One of the things that makes this such a stylized, clever use of sort of device and contrasting what we expect exactly as you said is Wolverine is frequently the hardest character to learn about Wolverine through because they work so hard to keep him so clearly mysterious that yeah you know opening up on Deadpool made it a lot easier to connect with this title and see what purpose Logan might play in this story from the outset so my question then for everybody is how do you guys feel about the return to the very clearly X-Force Wolverine one giant super book atmosphere that we just left behind I'm not exactly here for it I would like for the book to go in a wildly different direction my Logan is not the same as Ben Percy's Logan and that doesn't mean that Ben Percy's Logan is bad the aspects of the character that I'm interested in are not really the ones that he capitalizes on despite the fact that what he does capitalize on he does masterfully so I was really hoping for a big shift in this I I feel like I'm insulting him but like I was hoping for a different writer for variety's sake and just to have somebody else you know be playing around with Logan given that the creative team didn't change hugely and that the general theme of what Logan is doing didn't really change. They managed to provide some really big changes in the tone by having Deadpool be the narrator and by having it be basically through his viewpoint for the majority of the issue, such that even though this is not really my direction of choice, if I'd gotten some kind of vote, this for me is a compromise that I feel like I'm going on this journey, finding it much more enjoyable than I had previously, where I was just kind of reading Logan because it was clear that his stories were going to be really integral to larger Krakoa plots. I mean, most of the other books try and connect a little bit, especially in the beginning of Hawks Pox. They, when Xavier died, it kind of ran through a lot of the books. And he's trying to keep maintain that, which I do kind of like. But, you know, since Hickman's leaving and there does seem a little bit of semblance as they still work together, but there is no head person, the strings have gotten a little bit, you know, untangled with that. 
I think just the unfortunate thing about Wolverine, the title, is that because Wolverine is also being extended into other titles, it feels like this title of Wolverine isn't doing him justice in terms of giving him unrelated stories and unique access to different avenues to tell stories about this character. It feels like he's often beholden to not only the rules of this book, but the rules of X-Force. Maybe that's a point in saying that Wolverine shouldn't have a solo title if he's also going to be on a team book. If a lot of his stories are just going to bleed into one another where it feels like you can't tell what book you're actually reading. You know, that leads to my favorite praise for the writing on this issue. Because, like, I'm really a big fan of the Kubert family's art in general, like, my whole life. I said that as soon as he was announced on the book that I was no longer going to be capable of being a reasonable judge of the quality of art on the title because it just, I'm going to say it always looks perfect. But one of the things that I thought that this book did was it hit on something we've discussed a lot on this show, which is when a character can break the fourth wall, like a Deadpool or a you know, She-Hulk or Howard the Duck even. We frequently don't see that character do it when they're in team books. They have to be toned down to fit in with the nature of the narrative. But one of the most exciting things for me about Ben Percy's writing on this issue was how instead he drew Logan into the madness. You know, the meta of New Mutants 98, Deadpool number one, Uncanny X-Force number one, the meta of the shot full of holes 9.6 and 9.2 copies of Wolverine number one by Percy and then Bub Light Logan slashing through the imaginary page with the uh, Wolverine carpet under Deadpool in front of the refrigerator all of the little Logan action figures in the refrigerator some pretty obscenely arranged things in that refrigerator but generally speaking the idea of drawing the cast of Wolverine into Deadpool's madness really did lend a lot of that this felt like a break from the norm in an exciting way for me Uh, also I am not afraid to say I want the Krakoa Beach body Logan towel and I I want to just give it but the really great thing that this book does is it doesn't draw the characters like Sage or Logan too far in they're not so engaged with Wade's fourth wall breaking when it comes to their actual movement through the plot of this story that it becomes like like almost difficult to read because it's tough to take seriously because it just becomes a lot of slapstick and you're not really sure how this is going to fit into larger consequences or is this still a serious book? You get these moments where Wade is fully unhinged, breaking the fourth wall, being totally silly, and you do get the characters tied to it. But then you have these solid moments of like, this is just another like Wolverine plot where something is going on and Deadpool is participating in it. But like that's the scenes at the end where they, you know, uncover the or where Wade has caused the robot apocalypse and they're now trying to run out of it. Those are all pretty standard and serious and there's no like crazy thing where they jump off the page or anything. That would kind of break some of the fun of this for me. But the fact that they found that balance of showing Wade at his best and how we love him when he's written well and also showing him as an effective member of a kind of ongoing plot is really fantastic. 
I think this book does a really good job of showing why Wade Wilson, Deadpool, is a very popular character. I think this book's writing hit the fourth wall in a really entertaining way without it being obnoxious, overly advert, or so meta that the, to the point where it's like, this doesn't feel like even realistic, and which is a crazy thing to say about a comic about a bunch of people running around in hot, span, sparkly spandex. But more, it's to say that this fourth wall breaking felt like, okay, I see why Wade is popular. I see why Deadpool is put in a lot of different things and why he's insanely like, like people are, he's beloved within the comic community as well as outside of the comic community because he's just that tongue in cheek and kitschy. But he, and here is where I think it was utilized very well. Yeah, I agree with what you guys are saying. Um, it was a good balance and it didn't feel like, you know, just like joke after joke after joke after joke after joke, which would have gotten so so oversaturated after probably the cold open. And so let's get to the, let's get to the big thing here. That hand storyline that they have kept bubbling in the background. I think that's some of Percy's finest maneuvering around a large scale plot. He understands the significance of a moment, like, you know, a time displaced magic hand of Logan, like there's so many things about what this represents and what a Logan is. And that's the whole point of X lives and X deaths that you can't keep a good Logan down. He'll always find a way to win. And that, you know, ultimately became true of his family and all of the Logans. And the thing that I really appreciated here is our biggest positive critique of the book has been more sage. This is a voice you get right. Please, you know, Wolverine creative team, you make her look good. You make her sound right. She's so capable and competent. We only wish for more of her. That she was one of the only other characters that I felt had direct agency in this issue. It was a really spectacular touch. I think Logan, Sage, and Wade is a team-up I'm interested in on the regular. And I think replacing Quentin Quire with Wade at this point is something that could make a lot of sense. I don't think they're going to do it that specifically. Obviously, Quentin Quire is still going to be an X-Force a lot. But the three of them in this book where a lot of the time it's Quentin Choir, Domino, Sage, and Wolverine. And Beast. Don't forget that fuck. God, Beast is a tough one because I really don't like this characterization of Beast and I want it to move on, but it's really well done. It's an extended beat that I'm having trouble continuing with because it is just beating the character down. But that aside, you know, we're seeing the same team a lot and this disruptive element that gives us kind of new variations of the format of how X-Force can work and how Wolverine can go on missions. Now is a really good time for this and it's as i said before this is a great time to be taking a break from really serious wolverine stuff while continuing those plots because i am interested in the plots i just sometimes we get a wolverine that is so caught up in how important his mission is and how horrible his life is and how just destined for pain he is no matter what that no matter how much i love the guy and how many aspects of his character i kind of root for it gets a little exhausting to follow him and this is a really good breather for being able to still follow the plots that I love while kind of getting a different tone and format for how it's going to go down. I have so many wonderful loving thoughts on Sage. I was thinking about this earlier that Sage to Kokoa is very similar to how Doug is to Kokoa where pretty much nothing on Kokoa would work if Sage wasn't there. I think Sage truly does just kind of carry a lot of Kokoa on her back very thanklessly. Sage to me is the arc 
archetype of the character in like spy movies where they're the tech whiz and they're like hacking into the mainframe. Da, 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 and it's like, that's not how hacking works. That's not how coding works. And it's a bunch of like green, like binaries. And they're like, I'm in. I love when Sage gets to take that kind of supportive role where she gets to basically be her own person. And I really love this more modern characterization of Sage where she truly is not taking anybody's shit. She realizes what the job she has to do is and she's willing to do it and she will do it. But goddamn, will she not take your shit for it? Yeah, she's become a really important character since the beginning of the Krakoan era. And she's appeared in like a lot of different books, not even just like X-Force and Wolverine to like connect those creative tissues and yeah it's just like how vital she is to the the whole system so i guess this brings us to the real core plot of this issue in which i have to assume this is going to go well i need this not to put a certain fan favorite in danger but the the entire I'm frustrated, you know, because if the machinations here are by by danger, then danger is just another Karima. And I'm sad because I love all of the good that we get from danger and so many of those great stories and the evolution of this character. You know, she is so primed to be a fascinating element of the Krakoan era. I just don't want it to be alongside Orcus. So I'm hoping that maybe we're going to find out that danger is being paid by beast or sinister to do this but currently it does seem as though at the heart of the mystery behind chasing down this hand is none other than danger herself how do you guys feel about the sort of reappropriation of danger in a very karima-ish way when this is the book that turned moira into you know legacy death bot there was a marvel series that detailed like every character ten of swords ohatmu yes Thank you. Danger was represented, and I was like, why'd they give this robot titties? God damn it, Jonah. It was a little too sexualized of a robot. Like, for me, it bordered on Jocasta. I don't know a lot of Danger's story and history outside of that specific character profile. So seeing her here, I have no idea what her role is going to be or is meant to be. But I am worried that a lot of the ex-writers are creating and antagonists through tech and i would appreciate some differentiation something to help break that up because not to say that you know technology isn't the x-men's greatest enemy but it does feel like that's all they've been fighting for the past few years and i really wish that there'd be something a little bit more or different that we can do with them and i do feel that if danger is the villain and and danger is just being a villain and she's like trying to get back at krakawa and the mutants or whatever Whatever. It does just feel like it's stepping on toes of Karima and Orcus as well as Moira. I really I'm willing to see where this goes because, you know, I don't I never want to judge something by literally a character who had zero dialogue and is just making an appearance. But I would appreciate if in subsequent issues, danger is utilized in a way that's not stepping on other characters' toes when you could have just used a different character. So by contrast, I have read every appearance of danger. I am obsessed with danger. Danger is the X-Men to me. She's the whole team. She should have been the only person 
person that got voted on the Hellfire Gala and she should have just done the whole thing herself. She's perfect in every way. No, I really do love Danger. And even back to the original Whedon plot, which, you know, now we all see there's other problems with, but the Danger story and the idea of yet another sin of Charles Xavier and how that as a technologically based sin could apply to what we've been seeing and especially what we saw in Inferno, which is, you know, the machines have their own agenda. They're manipulating Orcus, but Orcus does not realize, the humans of Orcus do not realize that the machines have their own issues. And danger represents a pillar of issues that a machine could have with humanity as a whole, with mutants specifically. There are a lot of ways that this story could go. My preference, I think, Nico, I agree with you on this. I really want to see danger as a double agent who is working with the X-Men. I like her in that capacity. I like the idea that the mutants came to terms with this, you know, original sin of technology of theirs and were able to make a more productive relationship out of it. That's what I would really prefer to see. But where we are in the story and the way Percy writes, I could buy this going in a lot of directions, including, you know, just the idea that she is part of a coalition with Karima and with Nimrod, of which I think she could be a really solid third aspect that is different from those two and isn't just kind of a repeated like all machines hate all humans but really she has grievances that are quite different than Nimrod and Karima's and if those got featured in an antagonistic capacity where she was working with them it could really deepen our understanding of the problems that machines have overall with humanity including mutants. So I have real high hopes that we're going to get her as a protagonist and see her a lot on Krakoa and really kind of start to see the X-Men showing how they can make it work between machines and mutants. But if it ends up that she's a villain, I'm just rooting that it goes in a way that serves the character that we've gotten over the years. I am a huge Danger fan, but I haven't read an appearance of her since I read the Whedon run, which was a really long time ago. Since I haven't read her in a while, I was glad to see that she's like, you know, she's back. Basically, my point of view of her is that, you know, she is like that original Sin kind of character. So from my point of view, it makes sense for her to be in the book. But again, I haven't read every single appearance she's been in. I got like genuinely magically lost in listening to you guys talk about Danger because I feel like she's such an underserved, underappreciated member of the X universe. I specifically do agree with UTK. She is like a one-stop shop for Destroy All Mutants and she is an X team unto herself. So overlooking her is kind of wild. She represents a truly credible, horrible threat for the X-Men. And it's a really precarious situation because she is kind of the original Sin. And she is also a result of many things that are going on right now because isn't she technically a result of Shi'ar technology? Yes. The Shi'ar technology was gifted to them. Charles realized that it was sentient. And rather than deal with that, he suppressed any ability that it had to exercise its free will and just used it as the danger room. And then aren't we about to go to war with the Shi'ar? So what role does Danger play in that? That's like her home people. That's her home. So like, I don't know what to say on that front. I also do question, is Danger a mutant? Like, you know, we have so many conversations about how like there's convergent evolution and there is unique evolution. But like, we know that the result of the Eternals, Avengers, X-Men thing is the fact that 
maybe there really is some sort of thing on Earth and in the universe that possibly does lead multiple things to similar evolutions because of similar offsprings. I'm trying to be spoiler general here, but like the idea that maybe more is going on with danger than we know. What if she could step foot on Krakoa? Like that would be wild. Well, and she also has had a relationship, a literally sexual relationship with Warlock and their kind of melding together and understanding of each other's technology in concert with the fact that Doug is fusing with Krakoa. There's a lot of interesting possibilities, both sinister, I mean, like not talking about the dude, but like both bad possibilities and really cool, really positive ones. So my question then for you guys becomes, what do you hope to see happen in this slightly retooled Wolverine, but kind of really the, a continuation of the same idea? And how do you guys feel about the new players being introduced or reintroduced like Sage and Danger? I know I'm really excited for the idea of a further infusion of positive female characters into this title, because one of the things that I most most necessarily need is the book to remember that there is is a necessary need for the female voice in the title. You know, Ben Percy does such a great job painting Wolverine, but it becomes so specific and so incapable of showing us other characters because Wolverine is this closed off, emotionally distant person. You know, that opening with Wade is just such a fun time. So going from that opening with Wade to seeing Sage thrive and the return of danger, I have high hopes for this as long as it goes places that I don't need to be worried about Wolverine recovering from. We've had a few too many Wolverine can barely survive this is and I I need to see a wi- I need to see a win. I need to see a W for W. No more L's for L. Wins for Wolverine, no more losses for Logan. Yeah, especially we just had like a huge month or, or two or three months of him going through like the L's and even at the beginning of this issue it was wrapping up that so it's it's it would be nice to see him just like slicing and dicing you know having a good time Deadpool brings up a lot of good points at the beginning of this issue thinking about like like even questioning does Wolverine even want to be a part of Krakoa like or does he just want to like move to the forest or whatever and you know just live by him like his lonesome self for me it could go either way my hope is that this book keeps the tone that it was established in this issue and stays really fun and loose. I would love to see a character like Danger have to interact with Wade and get sucked into the craziness and have to kind of give us a moment, even if it's going to turn out that she's a villain, give us a moment of levity and like some acknowledgement that this is all, you know, still comic books, still fun. I am ready for, if I can't have like my completely different concept of Logan that I keep talking about that I want in a book, I want to keep this tone where things can be funny and a little bit sillier and we can move through a bunch of these plots and, you know, maybe get Wolverine to a place where we start to, I don't know. I mean, the thing I'm always hoping for is that we can move to the, the family, the Wolverine family family and get Laura and Dokken and Gabby a little more stage time and maybe have Logan, I don't want to say fade into the background, but take a step back and not be constantly having to be the standard bearer of the line. I don't mind Wolverine kind of be 
being the every mutant where they do utilize him a lot. I think it's really easy to utilize him a lot with the way that his character is built and structured and has been written for a while. It's really easy to kind of just to throw him into, into things. But I do wish that the X titles wouldn't rely on Wolverine so much or at the bare minimum start shifting over to Laura, mostly because I think that Logan, I think Logan needs a break. Logan is so stretched in so many different titles and books and crossovers and they make whole events for him that it does just kind of feel like Logan's the golden child and nobody else gets to have any fun or special events ever. This does seem to be leading towards Wade at least trying to insert himself into Wolverine's life in some way or another and I wouldn't even mind a duo title with both of them. I do however feel that Wolverine often overshadows a lot of other characters because because of not only just how popular he is, but I think just how comfortable I think a lot of people are writing with him. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I would love to see the bounds of the X office be pushed without using Logan. Because, you know, we have such a wealth of opportunity to explore so many characters on Krakoa that it really does seem like this is a good opportunity to dive into minor Logan characters that we've seen over the years. I do like drawing in Danger. I think that's a really interesting opportunity for that. But, you know, there's a lot more Wolverine history that we still haven't really seen brought up yet. And I got to see some of it mentioned in Life of Wolverine. So I wouldn't hate to see some of it come up here and that taste of getting you know the wolverine family that you know the doc and gabby laura stuff that we got in x deaths it would be a really fun place to see that sort of dichotomy especially because we know deadpool gets along so well with parts of that crew that we could do like a weapon plus family title that could even have the occasional captain america backup and you know john wraith backup and you could do other characters in it but i wonder how this book is going to remain differentiated from X-Force with Sage in both and Wolverine in both and so many references to X-Force in the pages of Wolverine. I think it could have a lot to do with these machine plots and to that end and to bringing characters back that are important Wolverine characters. I just want to say that there couldn't be a better time for Albert and LCD to come back and really join the mutant cause and fight against the machines as machines themselves and they are also two amazing characters that deserve so much more page time 10 points for larry hama standing 100 percent agree it's something I, we haven't really talked about too much i love the the way that this issue is paneled especially a lot of the more wade centric stuff i i think part of what makes wade such a cool character is that you kind of get to do a lot of different interesting and artistic boundary pushing when it comes to the way that the wade comics are paneled and like one of the panels being like a sniper shot i thought that was so cool and unique and i would love to see more of that if i can the cuberts are masters of craft so like i completely agree i'm a huge fan of this art the colors are so perfect the art is dense and varied and complex it's a great time visually Hey everybody, welcome back to another segment of X's for Podcast, the show where we cover Marvel's mutants, magic, and high fantasy quests. I'm your host, Shona, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And I'm Steven. You can find me over on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star. 
And I'm Kyle. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And we hope you survive the experience just like Mordred? Mordred? Question mark? And that must mean we're covering Knights of X number one. This comic was written by Teeny Howard, art by Bob Quinn, colors by Eric Arciniega, and letters by VCs Ariana Meyer. This story is kind of like a continuation picking up where we left off over on Excalibur. And before we start talking about what this issue was about, how did you guys feel about the way Excalibur ended and what you were looking for in the continuation in Knights of X. I was really disappointed that Excalibur had been cancelled. I felt like it was just starting to pick up at that point in time. And I I got really excited when I heard about Knights of X. Getting more of this Otherworld storyline and dealing with the war there, I'm super excited about it. I was fairly critical about Excalibur, to be honest. It just wasn't resonating with me for what mutants and magic was for whatever reason. Part of the pacing in that series was just a bit off, despite the fact that the art was always stunning in that book. So I wasn't really sure what I wanted or what I expected even. So when I heard of Knights of X, I decided to go in with a positive mindset. And I have to say I was not disappointed. I had no expectations. So I feel like, you know, no matter what, I couldn't be disappointed. But had I really been on top of it, speculating, I would have been very pleased either way. Excalibur for me, I agree with both sentiments that you both brought up. I initially didn't fully resonate with it. There were things I enjoyed about it. There were things that it weren't. But towards the end of its run, I actually really was kind of getting excited. And part of that was because it was such a different setting comparative to the other X titles that because there were these adventures in Otherworld, I was really appreciative of that high fantasy, different setting that helped Help distinguish and differentiate it from the other titles that were currently going on. And we start off with this village being ransacked because a mutant, I believe if I'm not mistaken, was talked about way back when in some earlier New Mutants issues of a mutant going into other worlds and just not yes. coming back. That was Josh, the Jersey Devil. That was from Vita's current run on New Mutant. This was seeded a really long time ago and Danny wanted to go to go try to find him but they weren't allowed so seeing that be brought up here I thought that was a really great tie-in to a previous issue as well as help establish where we currently are in Otherworld and what's going on now that Merlin has usurped his throne back from Lady Saturnine how did you guys feel not only seeing what feels reminiscent of Sentinels as Joshua mistakes the Furies for ransacking this village to try to find him and how we meet Captain Bretland <laughs> going on with core. Well, I have to say, I loved that. I thought it was such a phenomenal way to bring in what goes on on Earth into this fantasy realm because it mirrored so beautifully. You know, like they are relatively beyond that on Earth, but then here it's like we're back in the 90s, you know? Yeah, I think it was a really great interpretation. It really reflects well on what was explained later on in the issue, how the Fae are just creatures of 
stories. Everything that is in Merlin and Roma's realms are creatures of stories. And you know that mutants have a ton of stories of being hunted by sentinels. So it makes sense that these furies would have taken the form of sentinels. Oh, that was a great point, Kyle. I didn't even think of that. Absolutely 100%. I think that's a really great read on how these furies are being depicted, especially as we delve more into the lore of Otherworld in terms of its residents and how they act and how their being is in relation to how we perceive them as, you know, human passing, so to speak. So we find out that the Captain Britain Corps is being held up in Lady Roma's domain. And before we talk about that in the Lavender Keep, I really want to talk about what happens before we talk to Lady Roma, which is Opal Luna Saturnine throwing a hissy fit at Betsy. And I would love to know your guys' view of their dynamic and their relationship as this strained, almost couple in how not only do they treat one another, but they treat their responsibilities to one another. I definitely feel like the balance of their relationship has changed since Ten of Swords. Saturnine used to have this really overpowering presence, and now Betsy is just like, you know what? No, you're just a pain in the ass, and I am not going to deal with this. You need to figure out a way to get us the resources that we need. You've done it before. Figure it out. I just love that Betsy has become more assertive in their relationship. I really love that, you know, she had such a magnificent presence in the last book, and it was a lot of tolerance on both of their sides towards the end of the book, and now it feels like Opal Luna has lost a little bit of her sparkle in terms of, you know, said presence, and Betsy doesn't have to take orders from her in the same way that she was before. She's being more of a leader, she's being more, you know, dominant and whatnot, and then, you know, beyond their relationship you have the juxtaposition of Rachel and her and how Rachel is just so excited to see her back and join the fray and that was really exciting to me and I cannot wait to see where that goes one more thing about Opal Luna I can't stand her (laughs) (laughs) I actually like don't like her at all I thought she was like drawn so beautifully in the last one and especially in this book but (laughs) she's just so god awful to me she is like Diet Emma Yeah, I can see that. She does have her moments when it's to her benefit, but... (laughs) Of course. course. With that whole, like, you exhaust yourself sending out a rescue team for every last mutant who gets chased by the Furies was so, like, Wanda uh, circa Reminder's run when she says, why do more mutants even need to be born? And I was like, ooh, bitch. I was so, so aggravated. And it just, it reinforced the fact that like I couldn't wait for Rachel to be in this book because I was hoping for you know the uh, the other seemingly romantic interest because I do feel like there's weird tension between the two of them like oh. a married couple oh yes <laughs> <laughs> 
to talk about what you're saying with Opal Luna Saturnine, she is a very lawful neutral character. And what I mean that by that is that since her inception, when she was first introduced in Captain Britain years ago, and I believe it's the Alan Moore run, Opal Luna Saturnine is a woman who has a duty and she has a job. And that is, at that point, was to kind of protect the multiverse in the sense that other worlds were being destroyed and being infiltrated. And it was her job to make sure that if they were going to be destroyed, it was self-contained. It didn't infect other worlds because they couldn't be saved. And oftentimes I think that very stark cruel and coldness comes from her always looking at the larger picture do i think that she sometimes is kind of cold and cutting yes but she's also somebody who understands that saving a singular mutant and exhausting resources to save a singular mutant isn't going to put them in a position any closer to where they won't have to worry about that anymore she's a woman that understands the purposes and roles that are larger at play and I do think she subscribes to the notion that like to make an omelet you got to crack a few eggs if a mutant or two is lost while trying to save Otherworld and take its claim back from Merlin who's you know insert obic you know homophobic I guess not obic but like you know homophobic racist blah 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 stand in she's trying to push Betsy to understand that like I understand you want to save these mutants but you've got to I think there has to be a different maneuver did it come out that way no did it come across as a little cranky that she her home was taken from her I yes and I understand that, especially when she already took the throne from Merlin. Now she has to do it again. But I, I find their dynamic so fascinating, especially I think about what happened in the Ten of Swords crossover event. And I think about that love potion and that love spell that Opal Luna Saturnine tried to cast. And what actually happened was it ended up not being Brian, but it ended up being Betsy. Something about that is just maybe reading too much into it, but also... Uh, you can kind of see that there is this form of love, not romantic like you think it is, but I think there is a form of love between the two where they both mutually understand they have to work together on things, otherwise they won't succeed ever. But I would love to know, moving on from one ruler to another, Lady Roma, I find as such a fascinating character. I don't know too much about her previously before this current iteration of Excalibur and Knights of X, but I do really appreciate how much disdain she has for her father and that she also understands that like mutants aren't the problem that there, there's nothing wrong with mutants and i would love to know your guys's read on this character and her saying i will help you betsy but the only way i can and being you know tricky fey otherworldly and like now you're gonna have to go on a quest <laughs> Oh, I'm so excited for the quest. I love, love the fairy magic works in stories. Like, that was such a great note to hit. Mm -hmm. Speaking of fairy magic, Betsy drank some of Roma's champagne. Yes, she did. She she got that sparkly bubbly. Yeah. I didn't notice, actually. That's kind of scary, if you ask me. Because consuming fey food means that you can't leave. You're absolutely right. This quest is something that I think would have greatly benefited Excalibur, mm -hmm. but I also understand that while I do think it would benefit from it, everything there needed to happen in order to facilitate for this to happen. There's so much going on in the world, 
in on Earth, 616 Earth, that I understand that a lot of that conflict had to happen so we could have a very standard magical RPG party quest to go get this MacGuffin, the Siege Perilous, which is a stone that can oh help God. them transport <laughs> the armies needed. I can't even begin to describe the chills I had. I can't even begin to imagine how Betsy must have felt when she saw the Siege Perilous. I'm not sure how much beyond the Outback era she's interacted with it. I know that it's shown up after that. That was a huge moment for her as a character to encounter the Siege Perilous and having it show up again, yeah, I would not be surprised if her heart sunk. Yeah, absolutely. Like, oh my gosh, this thing from my past completely altered the course of my life, you know? So I just, the body dysphoria that it caused, I'm so excited to see this interaction and internal struggle. Because I do think that we're going to get some of that in this book. My first exposure to Opal Luna Saturnine is Uncanny X-Men 452 when Emma and Rachel become the White Queen and the White Warrior Princess and she like gives her that little trick telepathically and then her and Courtney have that battle of wits. So, because she's Courtney Ross, right? I think they reference that in this book. I'm not sure where things stand between... I think Courtney Ross got murdered and Saturnine took over for her, but that might have been the other Saturnine. There's another Saturnine? Yeah. Oh, well, there's there's I, multiple. There, yeah, there's, there's multiple. There's oh Opal Luna Saturnine! That's the German one. Saturnine. Yeah. Oh my god, there's a Saturnine? <laughs> Yes. It's a multiverse. <laughs> it's a multiverse. I'm saying I literally cannot even with that. She specifically was prior to her job as Omnitrix, uh, um, whatever she was doing Maje in other world. Oh, gotcha. Yes. Omnitrix, Majestrix. There's so many words yeah. that end um, That she specifically was an agent to maintain the multiverse. Mm -hmm. So there were also multiple versions of her that did the exact same job with varying degrees of uh, goodness or evilness thrown in. Okay, so you know what? Nick's everything I said. I have no idea anything about this woman. She is so confusing to me. The only thing I know is that some form of her came in contact with Emma as a foil. So yeah. So Lady Roma gives Betsy this quest and what? how do you guys feel about her chosen companion? She only gets 10. Do you think somebody is missing from this that you would have loved to have seen? How do you feel about Shogo being in this internal slumber dreaming about Otherworld? And I won't, wouldn't call it a tantrum, but it does kind of seem like he's throwing a little bit of a hissy fit, which is adorable. I like all of the characters. I mean, I really haven't had much time to understand Shatterstar yet. I know that he's connected to Richter and I'm interested to see how their relationship will work in this book. I'm really enjoying Richter being very forceful with telling Shatterstar that they're going to be doing this. 
I'm a little uncomfortable about Shogo being there without Jubilee, but it makes sense based on where his character has been going throughout Excalibur. I'm very happy that we're getting more Megan. I was very happy that they brought her onto the team during the later parts of Excalibur, so having more of her is wonderful. Gambit... I'm not really sure where he fits with the rest of the X line, so I guess this works. <laughs> I will freely admit that I know v- little to nothing about Kylan, and for some fucking reason, I was so stoked to see him in this book. So clearly, my feelings about him are very positive. I really liked his powers too. I thought that was really fun. Shatterstar, I actually love Shatterstar, but this is my least favorite look for him. I don't know why we keep going back to those 90s padding and ponytail. It drives me insane. Gambit, I don't actually have any real feelings about. Megan, I was super excited about. Bay, I was super excited about. Richter, I was honestly super excited about. Hell, I was super excited about freaking Mordred. <laughs> like, I just was. I know she seeded the whole thing with Shogo being a dragon and finding this place to be more natural because he got to feel freer but he's also not even two so (laughs) i have no idea what the choice is there for shogo i was very excited for rachel i also feel a little bit on the other side of that too because i just have this like craving for rachel kitty as like a pairing Mm. and i do think that we're moving away from that and more towards a rachel and betsy thing so i'm a little disheartened about that but i was living for her Otherworld outfit where oh she God. she's essentially cosplaying as Chandra Nalar and she looks magnificent. I am so excited for her in this book and I cannot believe I'm saying uh, the words that I'm excited for Rachel in a book because it wasn't until X Factor that I actually started to really enjoy her character. I'm just really excited. I do think that this book could have used Kitty, maybe Nightcrawler and honestly I kind of would have really liked to see what Teeny would have done with Jersey devil yeah it would be interesting to see what somebody could do with jersey devil but kind of on the same line of shogo being there i'm worried that having a kid on the team would be a liability especially considering how much Roma was hinting that these trials that they're going to have to go through are going to be rather traumatic from what it sounds like. This is a very safe cast because we have some members of the Excalibur run between Shogo and Jubilee with Richter, with Gambit, a little bit of Rachel. Rachel, you know, popped her head in here and there. I am appreciative of that. And I do enjoy that we do have some newer faces, you know, like Rachel and Shatterstar. I am fascinated to see how Kailun will be utilized. He's a character I'm not familiar with. He was introduced in the original Excalibur back in the 80s. He seems fairly fascinating. If he's a Master Swordsman and he's a feline form, I don't understand why his mutant name isn't Puss in Boots. <gasps> oh my god, I would love that. 
<laughs> that was like a, an electric shock when you said that because that's so adorable. I am fascinated about Mordred, and I think that's the character on everybody's mind who's reading this. Mordred being a mutant, I think, is new. As, so we have this new character, essentially, with mutant abilities that we don't know anything about. And I, I would love to know what it is. I Part of me hopes it's something like amazing and grandeur, but the other part of me is like like spiteful and kind of hopes it's like something really dumb. Like, what if he just glows in the dark sometimes? How do you guys feel about not only the introduction of Mordred, but like wh- what this means? Do you think, do you think we're going to get the prophecy fulfilled where Mordred kills Arthur? I'm getting really annoyed with Arthur, but I think Arthur has also been getting very manipulated by Merlin. So I'm hoping that it will be a misinterpretation of the prophecy that Mordred kills Arthur. Yeah, this is a delicate situation, in my opinion, because there are several different ways this can go. And I think that there are wrong plays I guess I'm a little concerned because I'm worried that Mordred is going to secretly turn out to actually be evil. And then, you know, like, how is that going to change his father's mind? Then, you know, I'm also all about Arthur just being freaking cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, maybe in the end saying sorry and not going through with it. I am looking forward to seeing how it plays out, which, you know, is great. I'm like very much invested. I'm just a little worried how it's going to be handled. Listen, we're at a point where a lot of the villainy that we're seeing a lot of the antagonism is from within the mutant community i think this is a fair place to say that is not the case here you know like i would love it if he was not actually evil he was just seen as evil because he had these other abilities like you know levitating 10 feet off the ground and glowing in the dark (laughs) yeah give him a whole bevy of useless mutant abilities we have our team assembled we have our 10 characters ready to go on this quest What are you guys looking forward in the upcoming issues of Knights of X? Is there something specific you want to see or something you're hoping to see that you would really love from like this kind of standard medieval quest we're getting? I'm all for cliched medieval quests. I need to have more information about Kailun because I don't know him at all. We definitely need to see Mordred's powers and I need more of Shogo's little thought drawings. Oh my god, they really are. I actually really loved that too. I guess I want to see the roundtable mythos coming into effect because Arthurian legend is extremely rich. There is a lot to it. I actually love to see this become like Betsy's roundtable, the Captain Britain's roundtable, and see, you know, how that plays out. I love the idea of Rachel or Megan being like her Merlin, you know, and the rest of them being her knights, her warriors. I am a little interested in the fact that like, was it three or four of the the characters are like essentially brawlers. So I want to see how they're going to be used and differentiated. Shatterstar, Betsy, Mordred, Kylan, they're all like sword swingers. You know what I mean? So what what are we going to see that's going to differentiate them and give them, you know, uh, unique voices? So I guess I want to see Arthur go down. More specifically Merlin, because he is a douche. Lunatics make me think of if Opal Lunatics Saturnine was like a beauty blogger or an influencer. That's what she would call her, like her fans. Like, hey, lunatics, this is Opal back again with another <laughs> oh my view. God. 
Um, Jonah, why is that so true? I'm waiting for Merlin to come down. Not to say that you can't make Merlin a villain, and I actually do think it's a fascinating take. I just, like, it's just very easy to root against Merlin right now. He's not very friendly or likable. I don't really understand why. I think maybe I would love some exploration on what exactly Merlin is upset about. I think this is one of the most interesting takes on Merlin I've seen in media. He's extremely rarely a villain, and this is such a great way to go to, like, surprise the readers, I think. I was really happy that in order to get everybody to Otherworld, they used that Ten of Swords portal. Oh my god, that was such a good point. Wow, I missed a lot of those beats. Teeny really, really thought this through. Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of X's for Podcast, where we talk about mutants, magic, and marvels week after week. I'm Nathan, you can find me online at Dazzle on Twitter and Instagram, that's Dazzle, like in the Age of Apocalypse. I'm Jake, you can find me plotting the downfall of Krakoa at Omega Sentinel on Twitter, that's O-H Mega Sentinel. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And that would make me Raven, aka Dame Red Thread, and you can find me over on Twitter and instagram uh come over strike up a conversation i got plenty to say and i hope you survive this experience unlike my exceedingly ill-advised deep deep deeply troubled and toxic fangirl dick riding saber tooth needing crush (sighs) (laughs) uh yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, i'm the queen of bad decisions but even i'm like ooh, ooh, i might need to step away i mean i still want to but i might need to step away from my own safety well i mean i guess that means if we're talking about bad decisions and people in your hole we're talking about <laughs> saber tooth number three saber tooth number three is brought to us by victor laval is our writer leonard kirk is our artist rain Boredo is our color artist and vc's Corey teeth as our letterer this is not the story i thought i was going to get but this is a story that is exceeding any expectations i could have for a saber tooth book so Mm. where are y'all with this at this point like i am kind of blown away i never expected we would get such nuance and you know deep meaning and you know talking about you know the need for justice reform we're talking about the need for you know we're talking about people being invisible and how they feel with that it was a ride it did not give me what i was stupidly wanting but it definitely gave me what i need and i love it i love it when Sabretooth was put into the pit in hawkspock i read that as a very strange moment for the founding of the nation because he was being tried in secret by an unelected group of people against rules that had not been written when he committed the the crimes that he did and that always felt like a problem to me you know when i when i first read it i was like oh here's krakoa's original sin like this is the wound at the founding of the nation that's going to fester and come back to them and i never imagined i could never really get in my head what that would look like and what victor laval has been doing here is just such profound work asking really powerful questions about you know the founding of nations the found like can utopias exist 
can Krakoa continue on with this wound at its heart? And I think that that's like a, a question that's as literal for the island of Krakoa as it is like figurative and philosophical for the nation state. I'm glad, Jake, that you brought up Original Sin because like I've been really enjoying the fact that we're getting a story exploring this horrific crime of like installing a prison on in paradise, you know, something that seems vile and jarring and at odds with the entire idea of what they're doing of mutant amnesty and like even putting aside the absolutely criminal way in which the prison was instituted in the first place and in which Sabretooth was thrown down. But having that alongside all of these references to Paradise Lost and The Tempest and Thomas Paine's political ideology, it's just adding layers and layers of richness to this entire story about the surveillance state that Xavier is instituting on uh, Krakoa. This is another branch of the exploration that we're seeing over in X-Force as well. What extremes do these new nations, this new nation of marginalized people that finds itself at odds with the world, they have this internal sense of utopia, but even that's not really quite true. And so they have the arm of force, they have the incarceration, they've got, they've got the unelected government, like there are a lot of problems at the the heart of this nation that really have kind of organically been raised over the course of the last few years as writers have taken these threads and really teased them out. Laval really nails down the extreme lack of transparency that has happened to the council. I don't know if this is supposed to be current. I feel like it is. But like ever since the move to the immortal X-Men of the council who all know the secret and can't leave because they can't give it away to anybody else. Like I never thought that people couldn't just like walk in and see the proceedings of the council. I mean, previously that didn't ever seem to be true. People were in and out of there all the time. So it's interesting to add layers and layers to this constantly of the moral and political compromise that follows from the incredibly unstable foundations upon which Krakoa has been built now. This is like the founding of America. Like they're doing Mm -hmm. all of these, you know, experiments basically with Victor Creed's freedom, with how he can operate, how he can move, how he can, you know, just be himself. And then they're changing those rules right after they've done it to him because, oh yeah, that 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 does seem kind of bad but do they go back and correct the fact that they did that to him no they just leave him there they just let him suffer that punishment which i mean speaks to like incarceration slave patrols all different manner of policing that's enforced on marginalized groups from the irish to the italians to the chinese i'm just like oh my god this is most of our history shit do like is that we do get a little bit of update when we are when they're talking to bling bling's talking about the hellfire gala being ready to go on so this is like pre hellfire gala so that would make sense why there's no nanny or orphan maker there's no toad just incidentally to that scene with bling it took me a couple of reads to like sit and realize that this was probably one of the first times that you had three mutant women of color having an important discussion on Krakoa. And that was cool. Yeah. A lot of important moments between characters who don't get a lot of screen time interacting with each other. And I I feel like that, that really deserves a lot of raising up because it's happening a lot in this book. It's really great to get an X book in the hands of a marginalized creator, a a creator of color, a black creator, just because you have things like this and they can come up organically. They can come up organically in any book, but they don't seem to in White Rider's books. 
Uh, we've got three black women talking to each other about the politics of the nation and getting out of the carceral system. We've got several other black characters throughout in the story about the injustice of the prison system. It's something that like absolutely needed to happen. And it's something that feels completely organic and normal and it should, but it's something that is like noticeably lacking from a lot of the other books. And this has been a really nice, refreshing read. We get some characters brought back in talking to other characters. We've got Skin, who has been criminally underused ever since he has been resurrected. I think we've seen him in panel like maybe once or twice. Like I know at least once, but like maybe twice or three times but nothing substantial and we got a really nice beautiful scene with him and madison jeffries talking about how they feel and you know i thought it was touching when skin says someone there and madison jeffries like oh you're not who i was looking for and he's like i get that a lot so i mean these conversations that they have while they are sent to look for the supervillains, even though we find out at the end that was a feint but still the one thing about the oya bling and necro conversation is like do we think were they putting there together it looks like they were putting there for the same thing is i don't remember that does seem to be the implication though we were tried and sentenced in a secret court is what they say and it looks like bling is looking for both of their bodies so there's a sense that they disappeared around the same time yeah i don't remember if we've actually seen why they're in the pit yet in a previous issue i'm gonna have to actually go back and reread the last issue because i don't know if they mentioned that or not but it does appear that they went there for presumably the same crime that they committed together and they also make mention to having patrolled the shores in defense of the nation so i wonder if they were like auxiliary marauders or something Ooh, i kind of like the idea of auxiliary marauders this also the conversation between mole and third eye like is is beautiful like the conversation about being able to hide in plain sight when you're invisible is is so touching like was our favorite conversation that y'all had i was really fond of seeing skin again that was like just a joy and a delight for me when he turns around and you see his face after his hands just sing there and he looks ugly and i love that i'm like so happy that they didn't just like make him hot for the krakoan era you know skin looks like just a wrinkled pile of skin and that's how he should look i was very excited to see that and he has so many good lines in this and he's so empathetic and feeling but like i think my absolute favorite is when he just says like he finishes his little speech with you know i'm still angelo smooth as ever that is just like (laughs) such an like a deep dripping irony from his hatred of the way that he looked in the past and it's it's wonderful i love him totally getting that box like is not comfortable with his body and doesn't want to live in it anymore and feels more like himself now that he can kind of dissociate from it yeah that was really powerful because he's always been a little squeamish and uncomfortable around like organics and so this idea that he could leave his body behind and just be a cloud of microplastics it felt like the euphoria to his bodily dysphoria it did and he's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And the thing I wanted to just sort of respond to with your point about Skin, the art is beautiful and it really feels like a loving reference to some of Skin's first appearances when he didn't really have control over his powers. Because there are, like, because he can pull himself tight again and, like, be that hot boy and he does it He does it at the Hellfire Gala. But I like this idea that when he's, like, sitting out on the shore, you know, watching the sun, he's just relaxing and his skin relaxes yeah, too. Yeah, totally agree. So refreshing and you're right it like it calls back to those like earliest like Pacello drawn issues and stuff like that where I've seen him just dripping and with the very extremely long like upper lip I also really 
appreciated the conversation with uh, Third Eye and Mole, if only for like explicitly making it clear that Xavier can and does read everybody's mind all the time, and he just can't focus on everybody. It just it feels very much like Xavier is a one man NSA over the state, and Mole being an outcast and a marginalized person who is constantly forgotten about, he is extremely adept at like you know working beneath the radar, so to speak, like an actual mole, mm-hmm. like a like a secret agent mole. <laughs> I agree with you. Like sometimes this comic was almost a little bit hard for me to read because every one of these characters that they're bringing in seems to be like very much marginalized or they were underutilized. And it's like, wow, like this is how people who are on the fringe or who are just about to slip through the cracks are treated. Like it is just, you know, it's not a fair handed system. Yeah. They get sentenced hard, harsh sometimes with either really poor representation or with you know a a judge who is who is heavily biased and and the prosecutors know it so it's just Mm -hmm. like geez this is a a really kind of a harsh look at the justice system how marginalized folks are treated which i mean (laughs) if it's got me this bad that means it's doing it really really well and these folks are marginalized even for mutants and have other mm-hmm. intersectional marginal identities, most of them anyway. I don't know about Melter necessarily. That's the thing that's really nice to see. We're not seeing like Scott Summers sitting down there talking about how like he can't <laughs> be a normal person because his eyes are so weird, you know, but like we're seeing like actual real world intersectional marginalized groups interacting mm-hmm. with being mutant, but also being mutants that are marginalized by the other mutants as well. And that's a really interesting t- thing to put in this specific book. It is a very necessary thing, I think, to talk about. Well, and Melter has the wither problem. Like, he's got a power that is entirely destructive, and he hasn't got any context for using it positively. He's kind of really only killed with it. Yeah, and, really does have a wither uh, vibe. And, you know, X-Men don't really do well with killer powers that way. Like, killer powers that can't be refocused and something else and this idea that they would just kind of see someone who can't really control it and figure out a reason to get rid of him is very like this is what we do with problem people he seems inconvenient not just because they don't know how to deal with his power but also specifically because xavier is concerned about him like trying to learn more about the power structure it's Mm -hmm. that is like seemingly very explicitly tied up in this Mm -hmm. yeah it's more telling that he probably got put in the hole because he was trying to figure out what's going on in Krakoa. Xavier has a frightening God complex where he's like, you can be in my paradise, but you cannot eat of this forbidden fruit of knowledge. Like, seriously. I mean, and Melter's not like a good guy. Like, the only other appearance I've seen him in, and it's referenced here, is like Young Avengers Civil War four-issue series where he was like running around with a group of really bad superpowered teens doing like really bad quote-quote like superheroing where they would just like kill muggers and stuff. They would like Mm -hmm. murder them straight up. So he's not like a good guy, but he's an interesting like case for the problematic mutant power who is too inquisitive it seems like he was at least trying not to use his power i mean it looks back and it's like i killed my parents that's a pretty freaking traumatic thing to have happen to you as a kid that doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily set you on a good path or 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 you know give you hope you melted your parents and then you know it shows him you know melting an old lady so like like you said he doesn't have a good start at all well, he was trying to help her with her groceries, and then and then accidentally melted her. That's that's what happened. Truly unfortunate. In that scene. 
Yeah, oh, gosh, for everyone involved. <laughs> right? She started asking about his car warranty. He got invited to this island, and I think he was just trying to start small for whatever he was doing, but it was too big, and it ends up, like, decimating people around him because Krakoa reflexively, you know, reacted and just basically killed an area effect. It's like, okay, well, shit. I like how he's killed all these people, then he meets Xavier's, and I'm like, I want to thank him. Like, are you trying to kill him? <laughs> I, I would, support I support he uh seems like he really believes in xavier's dream probably because i i feel like he knows that he's a reprobate i mean when he when he t- does that really dry talk about killing his parents and killing the old lady he very specifically is like you know i didn't mean to kill them but i don't think that matters and like he seems like he does have a lot of guilt on his consciousness and i think that like he's one of those villains who took the change where he had been led into a life of villainy because of his initial like accidental crimes and being treated as a criminal as a result of that and he seems to have gotten to a point where he's like this is a real chance for rehabilitation and it's weird that he's still so loyal to xavier even after xavier was like oh let me help you up there young man now don't do it again and then he did it again and xavier threw him in the pit i I guess he didn't think xavier would do it which speaks to his entitlement as a suburban white kid like i could speak to that right it was really gonna well and the like the like self-punishment like i deserve this kind of complex that can come from that too like i deserve this i won't warn you twice (laughs) i won't warn you twice i did it again i didn't think he'd really throw me in but like i definitely think there's a lot of guilt there as well i I really enjoyed Necra in this issue. I have never read Necra speaking like this before. I don't mind at all because it's really great to get inside the mind of Necra, like as an actual person herself for once. And really interesting to see that she reads a lot of Tom Paine. I enjoyed that. Her love for Tom Paine is based entirely in the fact that, you know, he fought for freedom. And then when America wasn't living up to the ideals that he betrayed his country to fight for with America, that he then just turned it right back around on America again because he was more true to his ideals deals than he was to some national cause a theme that we're seeing pop up over and over in this book so far in this series we're seeing that necra has a very strong moral compass that guides her and there's something really warming about the fact that oya who is someone who's just always been kind of lost in a lot of ways has taken to this woman who's got a very strong sense of self and finds comfort in that relationship yeah necra's never been written this way before she usually yells and like, ah, I'm going to kill you. Well, and she's just there for the look or she was just there yeah. for the look. She was there to be sexy and powerful and fulfill a fantasy. And now, you know, she's a character, a person, you know, with with ideas and values and hopes and dreams and all that stuff. And she has clothes that look pretty comfortable on her. Yes. Yeah. I'll definitely have to give it to this book. I have gotten so much more insight to characters who are either once background or, or minor characters, as well as Sabretooth himself. Like, I honestly didn't think I was going to learn much more than he's a hot, sexy, rampagey murderer. <laughs> and instead, like, there seems to actually be layers to him. He is still very dark. He is still <laughs> very angry but there's more to him than just that and there's more to these characters than just these little appearances we've originally seen them in and it is amazing i love how i love how lictor laval's been able to use all of sabertooth's backstory to create Mm -hmm. this character that is you know not just the evil jackass that we know but he's got this real intelligence and cunning and like he's evil as fuck but like he will go about it smart using all of his ex training everything it's just amazing like oh it's just so good but you know where are y'all at with this plot that Sabretooth was able to 
put together. I was so happy with this. This is so cool because not only is Victor Laval giving us like a really deep insight into how Sabretooth's mind works, the level of cunning that he really does have and that he possesses not only before being in here, but having developed it through all of his time in isolation as the king of hell. Like Victor is a man who, if he wants to commit a murder or do a violence, he will find a way to do it, even if he has to use layers and layers of subterfuge that he'll never apply to something constructive necessarily. I hope that he starts to by the end of the series. We'll see. It's a frightening layer of cunning and he looks to the CIA, of course, for his inspiration. As a former member of Team X, he's already got Black Ops background. Why wouldn't he look to real world examples? And I like that Laval gives us this like really deep insight into him, reveals his plan, tells us a lot more about his character and his thought process, and at the same time gives us the readers an education on real world crimes committed by the CIA or propaganda at the very least, the use of artists and the exploitation of musicians as a way to uh, subtly influence the nation and the world against communism, which doesn't feel like it worked, but you know, I don't know. It's This is something I didn't even know. I, I went ahead and Googled the CCF after this, and I was astounded to read all of this about it. This is all very, very true and crazy. I think it's a really unique way to write this book. It is an education in itself. It's an exploration of real world carceral state hierarchical violence and also of Sabretooth's own. And with him as both the victim and the torturer here in this case, which is so interesting. Well, I mean, that aligns with a lot of carceral experiments that have been done from the Stanford studies to just looking and researching, you know, prisoner violence within in carceral states such as you know Rikers Island extended periods of isolation this book is very much touching on each one of these foibles that we've seen proved over and over and over again we've seen how when people are not given any sort of rehabilitation or any means for rehabilitation that they just sit and trade criminal skills and mm. violence and so you're just making a better criminal when there is no rehabilitation they threw him in the pit and then they said here we'll give you your quote-unquote mental freedom but they didn't try to give him anything constructive to do with that so he just ended up becoming more and more and more criminal and then when others joined him he just taught them those skills he knew where to poke the needle so he knew exactly what he was doing and it, it was far too easy to steer that conversation because they weren't given anything else they weren't given anything that would help them become a better person so this is honestly the result of that neglect i think those are great points and i think it's it's interesting to think about the history that Sabretooth has with the x-men xavier has written him off entirely as rehabilitatable after the stint that he had at the mansion yes. and like the effort that he put in there and it really does bring me back to that question of if xavier's already made this determination then he's in no position to judge this person you know, in a in a in any sort of like legal in, in any way with like legal consequences with ramifications that would lead to this person being imprisoned permanently. That's he's not in a position to do so. He's biased. He can 
offer evidence. This is not Sabretooth being tried fairly. It never was. Yeah, and I think it's fascinating thinking about this subtle influence as like Sabretooth being the grassroots organizer. He's building the influence from the bottom up. I don't think we quite have a sense yet of what his ultimate goal is. You know, he says he wants to end Xavier's line, but I don't think he, I, I don't think he's like, I'm going to go kill Legion. So what does he really mean by that? What is he, what is the violence he's doing here? Maybe he got out and then sent Arcadi back in time instead of Mikhail. <laughs> Actually, you know what? That would completely make sense if, if somehow he worked with Arcadi at the end of this series to get because that was like, making Xavier's line extinct. It retroactively. Well, you know, it make more sense than what was happening in the story. <laughs> I assumed he meant like the X Men, the legacy of Krakoa, etc. But that's really stretching it on my part. I think that's a far more literal and kind of cool answer. I like that you talked a little bit about Xavier being like Jake, putting him in the hole and not being in a good position to do that. That's because Xavier is accountable to nobody. <laughs> Like at this point, he's ostensibly accountable to the council and people have been saying that since the beginning, but that is just in reality, not true in the same way that a lot of elected officials in our world and in our country, or at least in America, are also not as accountable as they allegedly should be. The checks and balances do not always function in the way that they were intended so to speak. And there aren't even any checks and balances here with Xavier. He's running a prison uh, pretty much alone. He instituted it like with Magneto and with the council's knowledge, but he does all the sentencing. He's the judge, the jury. And who who is there? Who is there to like stand behind Xavier's back and see that he's not screwing everything up? Doug and Krakoa. Yeah, I mean, there's Doug Emma Krakoa, Frost. They, they don't seem to like it happening, but also like what they let a couple people out and that's it. Like, are you playing favorites? Come on, Doug. This is a revolution. I think if it's going to be anyone, it's going to be Emma Frost because she has proven the most capable foil to the like Charles Eric Dyad. If that's the question, that's who I would put and say that like she is the check, but that's not a formal system. Yeah. That's not a formal balance. And she's less of a check than somebody who might unravel his plans and seek vengeance and strike him down from power and take it for herself. She's not a check. She is simply there. She's competition. She can put a stop to it. Yeah. If there's not somebody there already intervening or checking on his work and stuff like that, he's just unaccountable in the same way that Beast is. He is the representative cishet white male. Is. It is power and, and privilege. He has it all, especially since he's a quote-unquote founding father. And as much as I love Emma, is she the one to counterbalance it as a rich cis white female? Like, like I love her, but I don't know that she's the best counter. It's Talking about Xavier, if you think of, of re-looking through this book, Xavier would be the only big, popular, bright, shiny mutant that wasn't part of the invisible population that was even featured in the art in this issue like even if you look at some of the supporting characters that popped up we talked about bling we talked about skin even if you look at some of the one page cameos there's blob and then we've got marrow and shark girl and mole is talking to his morlocks it looks like his own version of morlocks so we're really not getting any characters featured in this that are the standard beautiful popular x-men and I'm, I'm loving it and i think this book is better for it for me like going back to Sabretooth's whole I'm going to take down his lineage. He's going for Krakoa. Like Sabretooth himself said, look, we're not just going to 
win this by, you know, tooth and claw. That's not going to work. We have to do this by cunning. He went the full CIA route. He's not even going to fire a gun. He's not going to do a, a externally violent thing. He's just going to pull the strings to have that thing happen to itself. He's far smarter and more cunning than he's often given credit for because he is just so keen on violence first. But yeah, it's like, um, he, he knows where he's going. He knows, he knows what he's going to hit. And he is literally just gone and dipped his fingers in every single marginalized group on Krakoa. These very background, quote unquote, people, usually people of color, people with disabilities, people who are, you know, visibly more, mutated. Yeah, visibly mutated, not a part of, quote unquote, polite society, even on a mutant island. So these are people who have felt marginalized, slipped through the cracks, pushed to the sides because they're a little bit more dark and a little bit more, you know, damaged. You know, plenty of mental illness references kind of going around. Like, these are all the people who would be open to, say, a little bit more uh, <laughs> radicalization because they haven't had any other opportunities, even on Krakoa, which is supposed to be so even and level-headed and, you know, whatnot. The they get their own house on the moon everybody else you get to kind of fend for yourself in these different places and there's something so telling about how the Krakoan society even though it's setting itself up to be separate from the human society it's still following the same foibles as the human society with these large groups of invisible people um, they, mm-hmm. even if you look mm-hmm. at the people who are put in the hole I mean you don't have a wolverine in there you don't have a cyclops that ended up in there for doing something bad but you've got these other characters who maybe made a mistake i mean we don't know what necro and oya are in there for but it sounds like maybe they accidentally killed a human in defense of krakoa you know which we see x-force do all the time and you know I know they're allowed, but, you know, we see that happen all the time. We see, you know, people accidentally destroy parts of Krakoa that are more popular characters that are more traditional standard characters. They get off the hook, you know, and and Melter doesn't. And, you know, there's just so, there's so much, like, depth in these choices. Even the ones that we know come in later. Toad, a visibly mutated mutant who took the fall for Wanda and Magneto. We've got Nanny and Orphan Maker who are, Orphan Maker obviously has a very prominent learning disability maybe a developmental delay yeah also he killed like cops for reasons that he couldn't control i'm on his side entirely here but <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah i feel pretty strongly that xavier would never throw scott summer cyclops in the pit no matter what he did he could kill five people for no reason and xavier is not throwing that guy in the pit he didn't put legion in the pit and legion has done some messed up things well i don't think he could put Le- like i literally don't think he physically could do that to him and that's been one of the but he hasn't even attempted it no but it was this ongoing point of tension in way of x that legion was the more powerful one and no one could really do anything about it they couldn't like he they couldn't stop him from resurrecting himself because xavier was willing to delete him from cerebro but legion just brought himself back in so i think that it really does speak to the point that like while krakoa is founded on this idea that all mutants are equal clearly some mutants are more equal than others which is a very troubling 
notion for a utopia. And we see this is not a utopia. This is just like, this is a nation state like any other. It has lots of problems. Absolutely. <laughs> Nail on the head. Paradise has got some problems here. It's like, no. So we've talked a lot about this amazing story and the story is amazing, but we haven't really mentioned the beautiful art team yet in it. And I got to say, like, this is some of my favorite art that has come out recently. I love the subtleness and the difference between Xavier and Sabretooth Xavier and the little clues you get even before the story review. Yeah, that hand on his shoulder was like super nice. I almost didn't notice it at first. I'm glad we're getting to talk about the art because Leonard Kirk and Rain Barreto really knocked it out of the park. I, th I think my favorite pages have to be the ones with box and skin just for the intense expressiveness mm -hmm. and the, the gorgeous glitter that is applied to, you know, the microplastics on Box's body, the soft tones of the sunset behind it, but it's all good. Yeah, the, the art in this was just so perfect and it fit with the tone of the story. I've spoken a few times and I know Nathan has probably been there for it. Like when we've spoken about uh, certain Doctor Strange issues the, where the art just didn't quite meet the tone of the story so there was that disconnect. This was the right art for the story. It really leaned into and kind of uh, like helped to bolster what was going on and I loved it. It was fantastic. And the lettering, oh, the lettering was also yes. quite lovely. It was so good, so good. Yeah, the lettering on that very final page just knocked it out of the damn park. I was so impressed by the just the horror of those A's. The art, it really moves kind of dreamlike from scene to scene. And I really like that in reading this a few times, I caught more every time I read. When they're doing the escape from Alcatraz, that's Digital 7, the raft that they're on is made up of Quiet Council yep. members, yep. which yes. I thought was hilarious but i didn't notice it until like my third read through and i was like what is it oh that's magneto's head made of raincoats made of skin yep. mm -hmm. it's a rich book and it really continues to deliver the more you read it the saber tooth claw in the moon right there in that like right in that same yes it works so well with the tone of the book strange in the past we didn't feel the art fit the tone of the book but this with this dreamlike quality the way it's able to flip back from like pure horrifying terror to sort of like twilight dreaminess you know the way that the colors work so well when melter is powering up like it's, it's just everything like the horror of melter being put over the chair by one of the Sabretooths in the Sabretooth council who i don't know how i didn't realize this until now one of them is a cat and i love that Sabretooth cat the one scratches his face up yeah <laughs> yep. yeah that's the little sandwiches guy he's got a little bloody eyes and a little bit of blood on his mouth so cute mm -hmm. yeah i like melter being draped over the chair is a really funny bit there's a lot of like visual gags in here um yeah i don't know the the colors really were astonishing and dreamlike as as you've all been saying the scenes with ling oya and necra being made of like sandstone and gemstones like Barreto really took the opportunity to just like go at it and it all looks extremely beautiful and real despite the dreamlike qualities of their surface explorations they did such a good job giving us you know a couple of funny moments like little little breaths to take but also like you know giving us visual gags but also so much much that you have to go back and kind of reread because each pass through you notice a little bit more detail and a little bit more story and it's it's awesome to have that happen because you don't get that with every book some books you like to read it once it was a good book cool but you don't get much on the the second go around 
on this one, you could just, you could spend hours picking apart each panel and page and still find more and more things. It was awesome. So as we wrap this up, any final thoughts? I would just say this is leading me to some really interesting questions. Just thinking of it just now, like there's so much, there's so much I've thought of in reading these three issues so far. But just now I'm thinking, you know, looking at the end where cultures vaporize a saber tooth. Now I'm wondering, if you die in the pit, do you end up in the resurrection? queue and if not do you end up in the waiting room after the hellfire guy <laughs> i mean that is kind of the question and if he's back in the queue when they resurrect him if he knows to come out swinging or he has help he could very well escape just like he said he would i wonder how long it would take for kokoa to notice that one of them was dead in the pit <laughs> hmm. who checks on them I, I dug occasionally oh Doug every once in a while. I'm, I'm sure Krakoa would notice, right? You know, because Krakoa is like keeping them all alive to some extent. Yeah, Krakoa would tell. Feeding off of them a little yeah. bit. He's having yeah. a little, just a little snack. I'm just really curious to see what kinds of reforms come out of this you know it seems like krakoa can't can't function as is there's too many there are too many problems too many questions too many people who will look at this when they know about it and say this is fucked up so what does this mean for the future of krakoa you know is it moving towards a more equitable state is it possible to move towards a more equitable state is this one step towards the dissolution of the nation i don't know but i'm really excited to see where uh victor laval takes us with this story the best result would be to abolish the prison system on Krakoa, especially if Hunger says Amen. there will be none. Krakoa allegedly yeah. abhors a prison. Let's just stick with that. But given the events of Inferno and Immortal X-Men number one, I think we're heading in quite the opposite direction. I think the state is getting ever less transparent, ever more hierarchical, ever more oligarchic, and it is consolidating its power and its grip on its citizens in a way that does not give me a lot of hope for reformation of this of this prison system here. All that's left for me to do as as a reader really is to kind of hope against hope for the denizens of the pit and even for Sabretooth in their in their quest for justice. Yeah. <laughs> uh I I where to even begin? I mean, this just really makes me want to look more at the prison systems and and kind of what's going on because it seems to be such good and direct commentary about our current system like on a lot of levels it it makes me want to do more research and it also makes me very much want to keep reading this title because i think there is definitely a conversation to be had on multiple levels and they are hitting all of the notes 